Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Are you curious how Dale Tuggy thinks he did on the Trinity debate with Michael Brown? In this post-debate interview, I asked him about his strongest points as well as what he thought Brown's strongest arguments were. This is part two. Last week, I asked Michael Brown, and this week, I'm asking Dale Tuggy. Furthermore, I asked Tuggy about Brown's Trinity theory, and he explains the one-self version of the Trinity as well as some of the major problems with that position. In the end, Tuggy both gave Brown a lot of credit for his rhetorical style while remaining completely unconvinced that Brown's position can stand up to the Bible or plain old logic. Stay tuned next time when Jerry Weirwell and I discuss Brown's opening statement and give brief answers to his many opening arguments. In particular, I'm interested in hearing how Brown or his supporters respond to the refutations that we offer, but uh, you have to stay tuned next week for that. Here now is interview 51. Dale Tuggy post-debate review. Welcome to Restitutio, Dale Tuggy. So glad to have you back. Thanks, Sean. Love the podcast. Frequently recommend it to people. Thank you. We're here to talk today about the debate, the epic debate. It was about a week and a half ago, and uh, I presume you listened to the post-debate interview I did with Michael Brown, I did. Mm-hmm. It was it was good. So this is a this is a great opportunity for you to go last for the first time uh, since you were always first in the debate, mm-hmm. and he got the last word there. How do you feel the debate went? Let me start by asking you that. I think overall it was a really interesting and thought provoking debate. I have to applaud Dr. Brown for being willing to argue about these matters. I mean, the easier path is just to no platform non-Trinitarian Christians and just stand back and call us a bunch of cultists. And he decided to get down in the trenches and actually have uh, a real argument. So, you know, he threw a few elbows at me for being a philosopher and whatnot. I don't care. I can forgive a lot if someone's just willing to argue with me. And, you know, I love the tradition of debates, and I think he does too. Uh, It's a way to submit yourself to reason and to to kind of submit yourself to examination by, by another person, by an opponent in a public way. And I think debates like this need to happen more often. As far as my own side, uh, how do I think I did? I mean, I mostly did what I wanted to do. There are a number of things I could have made more clear. My main aim was not to just show up or beat Dr. Brown, but I really wanted to present a positive, understandable scriptural case for Unitarian Christian theology, which focuses on the clear passages. Mm -hmm. And I think I did that pretty well. One thing I did that introduced some confusion on his part was, in my opening statement, I said, look, I'll concede you that Jesus pre-existed. And the reason I said that is, I wanted this argument to be about the Trinity, whether God is a single self or is, in some sense, three persons. And I know that if Jesus pre-existed his human life, first of all, you can't get from there to Jesus eternally existing, and you also can't get from pre-existence to him being divine 
being fully divine in the way that the Father is divine. It just doesn't uh-huh. work. So if you're trying to show multiple persons in God, it's really not to the point to show that Jesus existed at the time of creation, even that he helped in creation, you know, that God did it through him. Those are really not relevant. Um, but I didn't make that point clear, and he just said, well, hey, what is Tuggy's position really? Why isn't he just outright denying pre-existence? I just didn't want to get focused uh-huh. on that. And to some extent, you know, the debate did veer in that direction. Trinitarians feel that uh, they're on the strongest ground there and uh, kind of want to emphasize that. The part, the part about getting three persons in God is difficult. They tend to not be very explicit about how they argue there. My job was harder than his because... Uh, to the extent that all these passages were raised that are disputed in their interpretation, because I take what's become a minority position on all these famous passages. And so there was a kind of pattern in what went down. John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, Philippians 2. He would say, well, look, this is just obviously Trinitarian, or at least it has preexistence and Jesus as creator. And then I would say a few things relevant to why you should turn it in the direction I think it should be taken. So, for instance, that Colossians 1 is uh, in the context of the new creation, Jesus' post-resurrection exalted status. I think that really is solid. And I said a few things. Of course, in a, if we could focus on that, I'd say like several more things, and more than several more in the case of John 1. So he'd say, well, look, obviously this passage is Trinitarian. Everybody knows this. I'd say a few things that are relevant, and he would just kind of pour scorn on my interpretation and say, oh, that's just ridiculous. I'm just sticking with what it says. And then, I, well, I know what it says, but this is why I don't take it that way. You need a sense of historical perspective here. If I was a Lutheran debating a Catholic in the year 1530, uh, it'd be a really easy shortcut for that Catholic debater to say, hey, you know, take the top uh, 20 commentaries or the top 20 scholars in the world and ask them what they think is going on in John 1 or Hebrews 1. Mm -hmm. Part of the problem is that Unitarian Christianity face-planted in the 1800s. It blew up for its own basically internal reasons. And when it did that, it abandoned the academy. And so if you read early modern Unitarian scholars from the time of the Reformation through the 1800s, they have a lot of like really interesting points to make about Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, John 1. On some points, their arguments are really convincing. What's happened in the mainstream theological academy is they have just deliberately forgotten this whole realm of Christian thought. And so they don't study these things. Um, And they just literally don't know that John 1, a strong case, has been put forward to read it a couple of different ways that don't fit with Trinity theories. And they don't seem to know that John 1 was disputed in the first four centuries of Christianity. You have people even in the 300s, like Marcellus, famous people, bishops, like Marcellus and Photinus, they do not think that the Logos in John 1 is a divine person. They think the Logos is like a divine action or attribute or something, well, that's like what I'm saying and what, what some of these other interpreters are saying. So if I was on the other side, if I was uh, somebody who was a, a consumer of Trinitarian apologetics, I would probably say Tuggy got his butt kicked because a dozen passages were raised and he only addressed four of them and what he said didn't convince me. 
but that's okay. It's a danger of being on a majority side that it makes you complacent. But I mean, one other thing about the debate on reflection, it didn't, I didn't really think about it at the time during the debate. I was just thinking about the points that Dr. Brown was making and sort of how I wanted to reply and things like that. But there could have been some better engagement. So I read the relevant parts of his two uh, most relevant books, which was the second volume of his Answering Jewish Objections, where he has about 50 pages on the Trinity, and then uh, his book, The Real Kosher Jesus. And so I was, you know, figuring out his position. I still had some questions when I got there, but it was clear on reflection that he really didn't read my stuff. Like, if I was going to debate me, the first two things I would do is I would read the article on Trinity in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and then I would read my little book. It's like, what is it, 90 pages or something, called What is the Trinity? And if he had done that, then he wouldn't be just kind of befuddled when I said, well, I think you sound like a one-self Trinitarian. I mean, where is he coming up with that, you know? Well, you know, I've been writing about this stuff since 2002, roughly. So there would have been less kind of just expressing incredulity and, oh, how can you say that? Oh, you're just obviously refuting yourself. Uh, worship is something he wanted to focus on. And uh, look, I have a published paper, a presentation on YouTube, and a podcast all entitled Who Should Christians Worship? And it goes right. through kind of comprehensively the texts on this. And, uh, you know, he was just kind of assuming that, well, you can only worship a god, so therefore if Tuggy thinks there are two objects of worship, Tuggy must really believe in two gods. No. You know, and then he, he said it's idolatry. No, I don't think it's idolatry. I mean, where on earth do you get that definition of idolatry? On the face of it, that's not what idolatry is. So there was too many times when he was just saying what he took to be just obvious and devastating objections, where if he had engaged a little bit more with my work beforehand, it would have made, you know, maybe a, a deeper debate. But still, again, right. that's, um, you know, you have limited time preparing for these, and um, we, we do what we can do. And so overall, just, you know, I'm really pleased that we had the argument. And uh, I really like the way, I like the format that he uh, suggested, and the hosts were wonderful. The moderator did a great job. And so really, I've got no complaints. What would you say were your strongest points? I would say three things. First, there's those six indisputable facts about the New Testament, which are surprising if the writers are Trinitarian and which are expected if the writers of the New Testament think that the one God just is the Father. I think those are a part of understanding the historical context in which you read the New Testament. I think they're solid. I think they'll stand the test of time. He took shots at a couple of them, which I'll talk about in a bit, but I don't think he did any damage to them. Um, so I think that was one good point. Another good point was just explaining in clear terms that the New Testament straight up teaches that the one God is the Father. That's something that's frequently obscured by all this theorizing. Um, another thing I did effectively, although I didn't rub it in, and I, I could have maybe rhetorically communicated myself better, was in my rebuttal, I pointed out that Brown's own Trinity theory is inconsistent in two different ways. It's first of all inconsistent with himself. The claims are inconsistent with himself because he's got one and the same God and one and the same self at one time being and not being the same way. 
he got himself in trouble here by saying the son didn't die, and then he zinged around and said some other things. But the only reason I brought up the son dying was because I thought he would just concede that on that terrible Friday, Good Friday, at, after Jesus breathed his last, at that time the son was dead and the father was not dead. I just That's all I wanted him to just say, yes, of course. Okay. And he no, didn't. He didn't. Yeah, I remember that moment in the debate. I was like, what? <laughs> I didn't expect him to answer that way. But in uh, in a sense, the issue of death and dualism and life after death was all a distraction, right? Because in any field of reasoning, everybody knows that if some A and B at one time differ, then we really are talking about two things. Because it's self-evident that something can't be and not be the same way at the same time. So other differences between the Son and the Father. Look, he has to say that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior. But the Son did not send his Son to be the Savior, right? He wants to say the Son right. is incarnate. Presumably, he doesn't want to say the Father is incarnate. He wants to say the Son was tempted. He probably doesn't want to say the Father's tempted. They just have to differ in one way, and then it follows that you're not dealing with the same being, and so not with the same self or the same God. So that's a problem. Another problem he has is his theories inconsistent with the New Testament, and I rattled off all these different teachings about God and his Son, such as, you know, that the Son is the prophet greater than Moses. So you've got God and his prophet, God and his Christ. You've got God and the mediator between God and humans. And all of these teachings about God and Christ require that they are two different selves because they, they cooperate, they interact as self-to-self with one another. And his, his Trinity theory disallows that. It was clear during the debate and after the debate that he was just annoyed with this whole procedure. He thought I should be uh, addressing every single one of his texts. I didn't want to address every single one of his texts. You know, he threw out John 12, and I just think, you know, his reading of that is just an obvious overreading. And he threw out other verses that just aren't a problem for me, or verses where there's a translation difficulty. I didn't want to get bogged down in all the details. I wanted to make clear that his view, his theory is problematic. He right. wanted to say, look, I'm just reading the Bible. I didn't come here to talk philosophy with this philosopher. He just was irritated as if what I was doing was irrelevant to exegesis. It's totally not irrelevant to exegesis. It is relevant, and here's why. When we're interpreting a source, and not just the Bible, but just like if I interpret a letter from Sean Finnegan, we have to exercise what philosophers call the principle of charity. The principle of charity is basically try to interpret as best you can, try to interpret a source as being consistent with itself and with other things that everybody knows. So uh, if Finnegan writes me a letter and says, I'm worried and I'm not worried about this trip I'm about to go on, I'm not going to say, that Finnegan, what an idiot. He's worried and is not worried. Doesn't he know that it's impossible to be worried and not worried? No, I'm going to say Finnegan's making a distinction. I mean, he's probably saying, I'm, I'm a little bit worried, but I'm not really worried, or something like that. So I have to interpret you charitably like you're not a fool. Okay, but we have to do this with the New Testament, and all the more so, given that we think it's true, and given that we think that these were smart and informed people, right? So if your interpretation of some passage implies that one plus one is four, or that at one time Jesus had 12 apostles, and at the same time, in the same sense, he had 14 apostles, 
you just have to go back to the drawing board. Um, we have to try our hardest to interpret a source as consistent with itself and also as consistent with things that everybody knows. Okay, but everybody knows there's differences between the Father and the Son. And everybody knows that Jesus and God interact in an interpersonal relationship as oneself to another in a whole bunch of different ways in the New Testament. So you can't just insist that your interpretation of the New Testament is isolated from these concerns about consistency, because this is how we send interpretations back to the drawing board. I mean, if you're interpreting the writer as contradicting himself, you're, you're being kind of vicious to the writer, really. Yeah, so that, that's what I was doing. I was saying, look, if you want a view that is taking the New Testament seriously and having them not contradict themselves or contradict things that everybody knows, well, you need to keep looking because Dr. Brown hasn't given you one that, that's not saddled with those problems. Look, we, we all have to be subject to reason in that way. If I say something uh, and someone says, hey, isn't that inconsistent, Tuggy, with something else you said, I think I have to answer that. And I think he has right. to answer to that. It seems like he wasn't too keen to clear up his view of the Trinity. When I asked him about it, he said that he believed in the formula, the more sort of well-known formula, what we might call a three-self understanding, but then immediately posited a fourth self, saying that the Trinity is a he so my mental eyes crossed at that point in the debate where, and then also in the post-interview where he's, he's, make, he's laboring to make a point that the father and the son are the same person because he's saying they share the same personal pronoun yeah. or, you know, one of the points he brought up to you that was pretty badly bungled because he didn't have a Bible with him. The Bible guy didn't use a Bible, which is ironic, whereas the philosopher had the Bible up on the laptop. And he, he was giving you this this text out of Thessalonians, uh, I think First <sighs> yeah. Thessalonians. You remember yeah. that? And uh, his whole point there was that uh, father and son are both spoken to using a singular verb. Mm -hmm. um, but, of course, that would make the point that they're a singular person, which is not what he believes. So, I mean, yeah. I, well, I don't know it is, if you well, ever Sean, figured it is out. What he believes. It is what he believes now. Yeah. He knows what he's supposed to say. You're supposed to say one essence in three persons. And so when right. we really arm wrestle him, he says that. But he's, he's very consistent in applying a singular personal pronoun to the triune God. And he's also really clear, I think, in making arguments that presuppose that the Father and Son are the same self. Why do I talk about self? This is something most people don't do. Trinitarians frequently like to play around with the word person. They'll say, look, this is a technical term in this context, and it means something different here, person does, and it normally means. Sure, in a sense. I mean, it doesn't mean human person like it usually means in everyday life. And there are some who say, well, what, what's, what person meant, prosopon and hypostasis, uh, what they meant in ancient times is different than what they mean in modern times. Okay, I just want to give them the word person. Let me give you that toy to play with, okay? I'm not going to use the term person. Self uh, is what, it's a, it's a common sense concept. Everybody in the world has it. That's why when Buddhists talk about the no-self doctrine, everybody understands what they mean. A self is an existing conscious reality, what's normally conscious, which is capable of choosing and thinking 
and interacting in a personal manner, like engaging in different kinds of friendships. And a self is real and lasts numerically the same through time. And all languages use personal pronouns. When a personal pronoun is used literally, when it's not personification, you know, talking about this tree as if it's a guy or something, Mm -hmm. when you're using personal pronouns in the normal sense, the primary, regular, flat-footed sense, you use them to refer to selves, right? So oneself Trinitarians, yes, they know you're supposed to say three persons, but they really, they, the theologians usually say that uh, a better term would be modes or personalities. Uh, sometimes they compare God to, uh, the triune God to someone with multiple personality disorder. I had read his stuff. I was trying to charitably interpret him, and I still think that's right. And if that's your view, it's it's got terrible problems. He got hung up a little on the word of modalism. I don't want to fight about the word. If you want to just use the word modalism for the view that God is successively Father, Son, and Spirit, that's fine. But you could call this type of view modalism in that the, quote, persons of the Trinity are just really ways that the one divine self is or modes of the one divine self. But it's not important what we call it. What's important is, is it uh, an acceptable interpretation of the New Testament? And I claim it's not. And uh, a lot of what I call three-self Trinitarians would really bust him on this, you know, because they acknowledge the real interpersonal interactions between the Father and the Son in the New Testament. What would you say were Brown's strongest points in the debate? I mean, I think he correctly highlighted some of the famous passages that we biblical Unitarians owe everyone else an explanation of. Um, When you have a minority viewpoint, I think the conservative procedure for other people is to start off with the majority and then see then what can be said on behalf of this minority viewpoint. And so I think he he effectively um, brought out some of the right passages. Even Hebrews 1, a lot of biblical Unitarians, including me, would say that uh, that's one of the trickier passages for our view. Dr. Brown's been in a lot more debates than I have. I've been in, I think before this, six debates. Interestingly, always with Jews. I have yet to debate a non-Jew. (laughs) Um, And I credit the Jews, you know, because they have a culture of argument and just putting it all out there. And I, that's one of the things that's wonderful about them as a people. But I, mean, he's, I don't know how many debates he's been in, probably dozens. And I think his, his, his uh, presentation, his rhetoric was very effective. Uh, it's rhetorically effective to heap scorn on the other guy's views. As long as you cross a line where you're not like too nasty, I mean, that's a good persuasive technique. But more importantly, I think he tried to engage with a few of my six facts. I don't think he got anywhere with them. Uh, but I give him points for trying because those are, I assume, a, a kind of argument that he hadn't heard before. So um, he tried to challenge one of the facts that said there's no first century controversy about whether Christianity is truly monotheistic. And I stand by that. It ain't, it ain't there. Uh, he came up with something that sort of kind of sounded like that, which was the two times in the gospel according to John where they accuse him of making himself a god or god or making himself equal with god but of course these are the <laughs> the blinded unbelieving opponents and they're always making ridiculous mistakes and one thing that I didn't really have time to come back to is 
if you look at the charges offered in his trials, according to the Gospels, they don't come up with this, you know, that he's, he's a polytheist or he's uh, changing our teaching about God um, or he's a pagan or an idolater, etc. They just, they don't do it. They would have made charges like that if he had said things like that, but they didn't. Now, the Gospels don't mention all the charges that were given. Uh, Matthew mentions some that are apparently just too spurious to bother mentioning. But, yeah, that's that's not the evidence that he needs to show that there was a controversy like that early on. What was the other one that he tried to... Oh, he tried to engage with... Uh, one of my facts was the New Testament worship pattern fits our view and not his. So the Father is the primary and the ultimate object of worship in the New Testament, and then the Son is a secondary object of worship, and glory that's given to him goes to the Father. So he's not the ultimate object. And in contrast, you don't see the Trinity worshipped, either the three of them or the triune God, and you don't see the Holy Spirit worshipped. And he, he tried to explain basically why that shouldn't be surprising, given that the authors are Trinitarians. The part I remember was he said... The Holy Spirit's shy, basically, and wants to glorify the other two. So (laughs) at least for the time being, the Holy Spirit doesn't put himself out there for worship. But this is a terrible argument, right? All the Trinitarian liturgies that have been around forever now, they always make a point about worshiping the three of them, worshiping the Trinity, and... um, so, yeah, it's still not what you'd expect if they were Trinitarians. What you'd expect is what we see in those liturgies. What do you wish you could have said that you didn't get a chance to? Well, you know, I had written out my opening statement, my rebuttal, and my closing statement, and I went through the whole opening statement. I changed some things about the rebuttal because on the fly because he didn't talk about the Old Testament as much as I anticipated that he would. Um, and then the closing statement, I think I read half of it, and I, I, he, so many topics had been raised, I, I just had to extemporaneously address those other topics. But this is something I wish that I had had a chance to say. This was the ending that I originally wrote for my part in the debate, uh, this paragraph. My thanks to Dr. Brown for a good and spirited debate. I would like to close by suggesting that his own mission of persuading his fellow Jews to accept the gospel can only be enhanced by sticking closer to biblical theology. Peter was not ashamed to present the Lord Jesus as a man attested to you by God. And by God's power, it says, about 3,000 persons were added. I pray that by God's power and by his revealed truth, Dr. Brown will be even more effective in his ministry. So I wanted to end with a kiss, but there was too many other things going on. I really do appreciate that he... Uh, He argues with rabbis. He tries to present the New Testament case that Jesus really is God's Messiah and that he fulfilled prophecies in his his life. And I appreciate that uh, Dr. Brown, when he does that, he really tends to avoid these speculations about the Trinity and even about the deity of Christ and the two natures and so on. And he focuses on what the New Testament focuses on, which is that he really was God's Uh, anointed man, and you know this because God was with him and did miracles through him and then eventually raised him. And so I I think that's great. And rather than sort of spinning the Trinity as really just kind of three 
somethings, three personalities, three aspects, three modes, something like that, to try to make it sound less tritheistic, I think he'd actually get better results if he came over to our sort of view. But there'd be a, a very large social price in that. You know, he'd be then yeah. locked out of the uh, mainstream venues, basically. How, how important do you think this subject is? I mean, I know this question came up during the debate, and your comment there was, well, if you read the New Testament and you discover the Trinity, then that's just fine with me. You said something along those lines. I was wondering if you could clarify that. Do you think it just doesn't matter at all if people believe in this theory? And if so, then what's the point in debating it? No, I wasn't saying it didn't matter. I was saying that I didn't just uh, latch on to the Trinity and sort of get offended by the whole tradition and then uh, sort of form my views in reaction against it. Um, I tried as hard as I could to remain a Trinitarian. Mm-hmm. Um, first, I tried to find a way to interpret the traditional formulas that was consistent with itself and which was consistent with the Bible. I was really shocked when I found out that those theories are not consistent with the Bible because they say God, the one God just is the Trinity, whereas the Bible says the one God just is the Father. I say that sometimes because uh, there's a difference between somebody who's anti-Trinitarian and somebody who has a really grounded um, biblical Unitarian viewpoint. Uh, if somebody thinks the New Testament teaches the Trinity, then I, I think they're right in thinking that that's God's Word and that Jesus uh, and his apostles are to be taken seriously. And I'm not here to tell them that there's some problem with those sources. I think they've got the right sources and they should keep going. And hopefully they'll figure out a view that makes better sense. Most of them are not aware that there is any trouble with those views. I didn't really think about it much in my 20s when I was in graduate school. I didn't really, ha- I didn't really know what the Trinity was, but I figured, well, everybody's a Trinitarian, so it must make sense. And why would these apologists be so confident unless they had views that made sense of the New Testament? <laughs> um <laughs> I think a person has to follow their conscience and try to follow God through following Scripture and understanding the teachings of the Lord Jesus as best they can. So that's really all I was conceding. I, I think it's it's important for a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, on a theological level, Calvin and Luther made a huge mistake by basically hunkering down with an Augustinian type of view about the Trinity. Other Protestants were bolder, and they pointed out that, you know, the New Testament just doesn't teach that God is triune or tripersonal. And so part of it is just ongoing reformation in light of Scripture. This is a failure of the main body of the Reformation, and uh, it's still something that needs to be addressed. I've talked to so many people about this, and when they come over to our views, they tell me how excited they are now to read the New Testament because it all just makes sense. Whereas before, they had lumped together God and Jesus into a blob and sort of just thought they were the same one. Now they realize that the one Lord is different than the one God. And you, you get this different vision of Jesus' importance and uh, what was so wonderful about him. You realize that he has to trust in God. Uh, he, has to follow, he has to find and follow his unique calling from God. He, um, he has to sacrifice himself and all the things that he would want for his life in order to uh, fulfill that calling that, that God had for him. 
you know, the whole doctrine of exaltation, it's not just Jesus going back to what he always had. Uh, it's really kind of shocking and amazing that God wants this man to rule the universe. That's incredible. So it's helpful. Uh, I think I also said in the answer to that question in the Q&A time, you suddenly realize, too, that Jesus uh, really is a model for us, that he's not omniscient, omnipotent, and incapable of temptation and just pretending that uh, he has these vulnerabilities. No, he really does have those vulnerabilities, and, you know, he passes the tests. So that, that's a really powerful and wonderful thing. Yeah, so Jesus and, is more relatable because yeah. he is a full human as opposed to a God-man. Yeah, and the confusion, uh, look, confusion is not a good thing. It's a bad thing. And why should we assume that God wanted us to just be perpetually confused about this? Preachers dread preaching on this. Uh, a lot of Christians just avoid the topic because they can kind of, they realize that their views don't really make sense, and they, they really don't see it in the Bible, um, even though they're told that it's obviously there. Yeah obviously there that my least favorite part in the debate was when brown uh dr brown busted out the standard like catholic and protestant apologers debaters list of early church fathers that called jesus oh yeah God. yeah the second century yeah pilfering of quotations yeah second and third century and it it kind of drove me crazy because i've actually read almost all those guys in some detail and I know that they don't think that the Son and the Father are the same God. They think the Logos is a lesser God. And some of them, like Tertullian and Justin, are pretty clear that they think that the Logos came in, came into existence a finite time ago. See, that's why I said earlier that you can't get from pre-existence to eternal existence or to full divinity. Part of the reason I know that is when you look at the history, you had mainstream teachers for decades... Uh, latching on to this Logos theory, and they didn't think that the Logos was eternal or that the Logos was divine in the same way that the one God is divine. Mm -hmm. And they're not idiots. They're not overlooking something obvious. And uh, Dr. Brown, I mean, I think he really just deduces the eternity of the Son from his being divine. But he he argued that uh, Revelation and calling Jesus first and last and Alpha and Omega is just obviously calling him eternal. Well, it's not obvious. Otherwise, this wouldn't have been a view that was current for so long, right? Even in the four hundred, the fourth century, in the mid three hundreds, you have someone like Eusebius, and he thinks the sun came into existence at a certain point. He's reading all the same yep. texts that we are. That's why he's not Saint Eusebius, <laughs> right? Someone um, afterwards, when when I was talking about this with friends afterwards, someone said, "I think the debate will age well." And I think that's true. I feel like most of the points I put out there were solid. And a lot of the points that Dr. Brown put out, you'll realize that either because of interpretation or translation or some other reason, they're just controversial. In a way, I think that's good. I would like to see the debate stimulate people to study. That was part of my goal, uh, was to to get people to run out to their New Testament and look up the start of all Paul's letters and see why does he send, does he really send greetings from two of them? Because that would make no sense if they were the same self. I wanted them to, you know, look at the passages uh, I talked about as just obviously teaching that the one God is the Father. 
and that the one God of the New Testament is contrasted with the one Lord of the New Testament, and things like that. So, yeah, you know, anything to get people to dig in and to open their minds. Yeah. Just before asking about uh, if you would ever want to debate the subject again, let me ask you about uh, this whole two gods accusation that was repeatedly leveled against you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just uh, go ahead and clarify for the listeners, Dale Tuggy, do you believe in two gods? Do you believe in the Father who's God and Jesus who's God, and and you're a polytheist? (laughs) No. I hereby renounce polytheism, (laughs) not that I have ever uh, implied polytheism. I'm a monotheist. But as I said in the debate, the Bible doesn't only assert monotheism, it tells us who that is, and it's the Father and not anybody else. This is, again, one of those places where if Dr. Brown had maybe put a little more research into beforehand, he would have understood my views very easily. There are a couple of podcasts that I did not too long ago, within the last year, uh, that have in the title, uh, Biblical Words for God and His Son. And one of them I talk about the word God, the word the words we translate as God, and one I talk about the words we translate as Lord. And bottom line, as I said in the debate, both God and Lord, those two words, are ambiguous. What he was doing, Dr. Brown, was he was he saw that I was acknowledging that, okay, maybe at least in one passage, I wasn't really granting more than that, at least in one passage, Jesus is referred to as God. But then this God has a God. Okay, so then it can't be the God we're talking about. The God doesn't have a God over him. So I was admitting that the word God could be used for God and for, and for Jesus. Um, and he's like, well, you believe in two gods. The quotation marks are very helpful. I believe in two gods, two, two ones who are called God, probably, unless you're going to translate Hebrews 1, 8, and 9 differently. Um, I don't believe in two gods. That's just that's just a confusion. He also had an argument that uh, the Jude four argument that, that calls Jesus our one Lord and Master. Yeah, yeah, he brought and, that up uh, several times. Yeah, look, uh, he is he is our one Lord in the New Testament sense of Lord for a top level human boss, based on Psalm one ten one. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. It's the it's the exalted one we're talking about. Yeah, Jesus is the unique Lord in that sense. He was making this argument that, as if it said, uh, Jesus was the only one who could be called by the word Lord, right, in any meaning of that word. And then uh, he had an Old Testament verse that, that the one God says he's the only Lord. And so it's an argument for identifying, like literally just collapsing into one being, Jesus and, and the one God. But it's a fallacious argument. But anyway, that's not what Jude is saying. Jude is, Jude is saying that Jesus is a unique boss of us. He's not saying that this word, Lord, only applies to him. And there, there was some other poor reasoning as well. It went by really fast. Uh, maybe I'll blog on some of it at some future date. But It seems like you were flying in a plane over Scripture, seeing the, the, how the verses work together into cohesive thoughts and... Dr. Brown was on the ground in the jungle looking at individual leaves saying, oh, look at this, look at this. And, you know, just methodologically, you guys were, were so unable to connect with each other in the debate. Do you think that's a, a fair assessment yeah. or what do you think about it? Because it, it really, 
your opening statement, uh, you synthesized six facts that, assuming the Trinity, these would be really awkward. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, unlikely, with, yeah, unlikely. yeah, or very unlikely. But uh, he instead was just like, oh, well, look at this little narrow text, and then this little text, and then he. I don't know why he kept saying he didn't machine gun. I mean, look, if you hit 50 texts, I'm going to count them. <laughs> I'm going to count them for, <laughs> for my next podcast, and I will get a number. But how fast do you have to squeeze that trigger for it to count as a machine gun and not a semi-automatic anymore? <laughs> but uh, we'll, see, uh, we'll see what number I come up with there. But you know, there, there was just a real disconnect between the style, I guess, of what you guys were both doing. And then when you came in for your rebuttal, Instead of uh, you know rebutting each one of his texts individually, which is which is rhetorically what he wanted you to do, so it would appear that you were on the defensive and you were the one that was trying to question the Bible, and he could just take the high ground. Instead, what you did was you were like, "All right, so God is three blank in one in one God or one essence," and he mm-hmm. wouldn't give you anything on that. He refused to synthesize it all. He refused to mm-hmm. explain. What he meant by saying the Father's God, and the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there's only one God. He ex- he refused to get into the subject at all, and just uh, kept focus on the the individual texts. And you did go into s- several of those individual texts, but that that wasn't all that interesting because you're really trying to get to what is Brown's overarching thought on the subject. Yeah, and I really was just trying to confirm, you know, my impression based on things that he had written. And yeah, there was a big methodological difference. Um, it's partly a problem of narrative. Okay, so he, he, I think, is assuming that uh, the Trinitarian traditions that developed in the three, four, five hundreds, that they were just kind of making explicit what Christians had already believed since the beginning. Right. Maybe just some new terminology, maybe a more helpful way of putting it, or something like that. And uh, we're Protestants. We base everything on Scripture. So obviously this must be based on Scripture somehow. Never mind modern scholarship keeps ripping those texts out of our hands. Um, Anyway, we'll keep coming up with new strategies to show how it really is obvious. But look, I know from studying the history of theology that in the year 250, there weren't any Trinitarians. And there weren't any in the year 150. And... Um, I know that obvious implications are picked up on right away by smart readers. And whatever problems they had, Tertullian and Origen were very smart. And they did not pick up on this, and that's why neither one of them, they were considered leading defenders of mainstream non-monarchian Catholicism in their day. They don't uh, ever mention a tripersonal God. They talk about the one God being the Father, like I do, and they have these two lesser beings, the Son and the Spirit. Yeah, Origen didn't even believe you should pray to the Son, and he, he makes a big point of that in his On Prayer book, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he later changed his mind about that, because um, in against Celsus, I think he says things that are inconsistent, so I assume he changed his mind. Right, but uh, the point still stands that if the myth of Trinitarian primacy were true, and everyone mm-hmm. just believed and taught that from the beginning, although not in Scripture yeah. explicitly, uh, then... It's unthinkable for Origen to say that you shouldn't pray to the sun at any point in his life. Sure. And then Tertullian, you know, he's he's definitely not Orthodox. I mean, sure, he coins the word Trinity, mm-hmm. Trinitas, but, I mean, he, he's got all this uh, corporeality mindset to substance. You know, he thinks that the God, 
God is made of a, a physical substance, just really fine and yeah. thin. And then he takes a, a, a subset of that, or he takes a portion of that substance and brings into reality the Logos yeah. uh, sometime before creation. And then out of a yet further smaller portion of divine substance, he brings into the existence the Spirit. Yeah, I mean, look, the whole 4th century debate uh, that's so famous, the Arian controversy that starts with uh, basically the events that led up to the Council of 325, neither side at the beginning is Trinitarian. No one's running around talking about a God is complex in his unity. It was a dispute about the age and the exact status of the Logos, which had become very popular by then. Mm -hmm. But they both had the one God being the Father, so... You only see Trinity right around the time of the Second Ecumenical Council in 381. People should know this, but they don't. And Trinitarian apologists are wedded to this false narrative that the Bible is just obviously Trinitarian and that they kind of smack down Arius because he was denying the obvious. Arius was just repeating earlier subordinationist stuff. He, oh, he Arius has, is very careful not to to spout any heresy whatsoever. I mean, if you actually read what little has survived of him, of his Thalia, you'll see, and, and, and I think we have another short little document, you'll see that he is very, very consciously doing his level best not to fall into heresy, and he's convinced that Alexander, his bishop, has just gone off the rails into just bizarro land with this whole idea that the Son is eternal. And co-equal. I mean, how can you possibly say that if he's begotten is Arius' main case? So, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I think this is really, in in a large degree, what we're recapitulating today with this debate and further discussions on the subject. I mean, you've got scripture, you've got logic, you've got history, you've got experience, and, you know, how this, you know, believing in this idea affects you and your community of faith. What I see is that Biblically, there's no case for the Trinity at all. There, you can make a case for the deity of Christ, but it's extremely weak, and I'll explain why uh, next time when I get a chance to. But logically, Brown never cleared up any of the contradictions within his own theory. Historically, it's a disaster, as you just pointed out. And as far as experiential goes, look, this doctrine has divided Christianity over and over again for century after century after century, and it is it is a doctrine used as a shibboleth to marginalize people who would otherwise have great things to contribute to mainstream scholarship, for example. So mm-hmm. I would say it just fails in every way, and yet still it persists. So I, I don't know. Would you debate this subject again? Yeah, absolutely. It just has to be someone who can engage with my views. Someone not. I don't just want someone who's an overconfident polemicist on these topics, but somebody who's willing to actually kind of have a good, healthy argument. Um, I would debate Dr. Brown again. Um, it was interesting what you guys discussed at the end of your previous interview. I would sit down and argue about four or five passages with him. I have a lot to say about those things. Although, you know, honestly, it might be better for me to to engage in a broader way than that, because... As long as you're committed to these, to this whole narrative and this whole sort of uh, philosopher of science would say whole research project, um, then it really doesn't matter what anybody says about any one or two or three passages. Nothing's going to shake you. And um, one thing I think I did in the debate, although I could have done it a lot better, 
was to point out some places where Dr. Brown was assuming controversial theses, uh, such as that you can only be worshipped if you have a divine nature, or that uh, someone can atone for our sins only if they're God himself or part of God's self or something like that. And I, the philosopher, was abstaining from theorizing, and he was, you know, bringing these traditional assumptions along, which, you know, everybody kind of starts there. Everybody does that. But these these assumptions do need to be examined in light of Scripture and reason. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks for taking some time to talk today. Hey, you're welcome. Uh, thanks again for the interview, and thanks for this great podcast. It's a really, uh, it's really a blessing, I think, to Unitarian Christians. Well, that's it for this interview. Go to Interview 51, Dale Tuggy Post Debate Interview, if you want to leave a comment. If you want to engage with Dr. Tuggy, please leave a comment, and uh, hopefully he will be able to respond to you, or head on over to his own website, trinities.org. There's also a Facebook group where I know that a lot of people are engaging in this very issue. Now, last time I had Michael Brown on to discuss how he felt the debate went, and this received a good amount of comments and feedback. I obviously can't read all of these out to you right here, but I just wanted to pick a couple to read that I think really encapsulated the overall interview. Sean Holbrook writes, Got to listen to this today. In short, I agree that Brown seemingly, quote-unquote, won the debate topic by trying to prove that there are others called, quote-unquote, God than the Father alone, yet at the same time is clearly equivocating when he claims he worships one God, while at the same time trying to falsely accuse others who admit to clearly defining their terms, like Dale did, as believing in two gods. I personally interacted with Brown online. Let me pause it there. This is something that I've heard over and over again, and I hope to remark on it next week in the next edition of this podcast, uh, which is that everyone is saying that Brown won. Even even Tuggy at one point says Brown won as far as the the rhetoric, as far as, as far as connecting with the audience. But even if he won, it's still not clear what he won with. It doesn't seem at all to me to be the sort of trinity that I've been exposed to before or that one encounters in most standard reference books where you have three persons in one being. He's got three persons in one person. This is horribly confusing. Uh, so we'll, we'll come back to that, and I think Mr. Holbrook will have more to say on that in just a moment here. But, you know, if you win a war, but you have to lose—there's an ancient term for this kind of a victory, and it's called a Pyrrhic victory. And this is from the ancient battle between the Romans and the Greeks— where the Greek general did actually win against the Roman army, but the victory was at the cost of so much for himself that he remarked that he uh, he might have won this battle. He'd rather not fight the Romans anymore as a result of it. And indeed, eventually the Romans did overrun the Greeks. So it was with this debate. Brown, in, in a sense, won, but what did he win with? He, he won with a completely confusing theory where the Son never dies, where the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and all three are referred to as Him. Well, look, if there are three, you have to say they. You cannot say Him, unless there really aren't three, there's just one. And if there's just one, then all of Tuggy's points about there being 
a difference between the Father and Son are extremely relevant because if there's just one, he cannot both know everything and not know everything at the same time. He cannot both die and be alive at the same time. Whatever your definition of death is, doesn't matter here. You can't have one person doing opposite things at the same time. That's just a contradiction, and it's not a limitation on God. It's just a contradiction. I can't open a door and close the same door at the same time. That's just a contradiction. It's not a limitation on my power or my intelligence or anything. It's just nonsense. And so, okay, Holbrook continues here. I personally interacted with Brown online the other day, and he took offense that I pointed out while he quoted Justin Martyr. It's clear Justin believed that there is one maker and another God, Jesus, whom is subject to that maker. Chapter 56 in the Dialogue with Trifo. He responded with two online articles which both ignored the text from the dialogue by trying to quote other phrases from Justin to attempt to anachronistically prove Trinitarian views. I claimed Justin Martyr was being honest with his words while Brown was seemingly fallacious. I have no problem calling out his fallacious wording and equivocation of the term God. It isn't meant to be an insult. It's meant to be corrective in forcing definitions for clarity. Holbrook, you make another good point here about these second and third century quotations that Brown makes. Justin is not at all unclear about what he believes about Jesus. He flat out calls him a second God. And what is so ironic here is that Brown accused Tuggy of believing in a second God while quoting the guy who says that Jesus is a second God as if that's Brown's own position. Some really rich irony here. Holbrook continues, It was good to hear yet, sad to hear at the same time, that I was correct with regards to Brown's view of, on Tuggy's arguments. Dale was being a bit too philosophical and not sticking to Scripture enough to argue his points. Brown had no clue what oneself Trinitarianism meant, and it's very likely the rest of the audience didn't either. Tuggy would have been better off breaking it down further, asking, Is Jesus a he? Is the Father a he? Is the one God a he? Then pointing out the problem of saying however many he's equals one he. You can't obviously have three he's equal one he, in other words. That's clearly equivocation or contradiction. This is why no matter what Brown says, he sounds like a modalist. Trinitarians would attempt to avoid this trap by claiming the being isn't a he. Brown seems to believe as long as he further explains without dealing with that contradiction equivocation, it's okay. Because yes, as Carlos pointed out in the Q&A, and I have a video detailing, Brown wrote that God, the Father, is complex in his unity. That's oneness. Trinitarians would say that being is complex in unity, not the Father is complex in unity. Uh, Holbrook then goes on to quote Brown's book. Then he adds, As for the debate as a whole, I think it was too short of a format to deal with many of the verses Brown brought up in good detail. Tucky mainly brought up candid points that are factually agreed upon between many scholars, between both Trinitarian and Unitarians, but that candidness was more or less taken advantage of by Brown without Dale explaining well the accusations against his position. Brown also stuck more to the debate question than I believe Dale did. This is just my one listen judgment, though. Then he concludes, great interview overall, though. Thanks for doing that, and thanks, Dr. Brown, for taking part in the debate and interview. Uh, just one other comment to read out before closing out this episode. David Seaborn Jones 
of the UK writes, Thanks, Sean. This was a great question about Jesus' sensitivity to the name of God. It's a shame that Dr. Brown didn't answer it, it at all, as that could have led to an interesting discussion. Th- yeah, thanks for pointing this out, uh, David, because it, it really was confusing. It seemed like on the one hand he was saying that he didn't want to talk about the Trinity or use the T word in his in his public ministry because... He was being sensitive to Jews, and then as soon as I asked him that question, he says, no, actually, that's that's not why I'm, I feel awkward using the word Trinity. It's because of his own heritage. And so it's like, well, <laughs> look, if this is the word that refers to what it is you believe, why are you ashamed of it? Why are you embarrassed of it? You know, I think there's definitely a tension there, and I'm not really sure I understand it even after asking him extensively on it. Seaborn Jones continues, In all honesty, I thought you let Dr. Brown get away with quite a lot, and it would have been nice to hear you challenge him a bit more, though I appreciate that having got him to accept to come on a Unitarian podcast, you couldn't be too hard on him. And you did very well tactfully and subtly trying to get him to defend his position, notably with regard to singular personal pronouns. I still don't know if Dr. Brown thinks that God is singular or plural. Both, I suppose unlike pronouns, which have to be one or the other. Again, let me just pause it again, the comment here. This is the main issue. Look, if you want to say that our theory on understanding who God is, who Jesus is, is invalid, but what you want to replace it with is utterly confusing, nonsensical, then I'm sorry, but none of us are going to be interested in switching sides in that case. Even if our understanding needs work, or maybe we need to spend more time looking at certain verses and incorporating them into our overall theology, nobody's going to jump ship for a one God in three persons who's also one person and who's also not one person. Because that's just that's just nonsense. I'm sorry, but it is. I'm not trying to be mean-spirited here. It's just you can't say whatever you want to say to win a debate— for the sake of winning the debate, and then get confused when nobody switches sides to your side afterwards, because what you said contradicted itself multiple times. You say whatever you have to say to win, but in the end, there's nothing left for anyone to switch to, because all you've done is destroy everything. Uh, Seaborn Jones goes on, the Trinitarians repeat mantra that God is one being in three persons, though I'm not sure if Dr. Brown ever said three persons. I think he said one being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by doing so, they have blinded themselves to the fact that they are set, what they are saying makes no sense at all. <laughs> apart, apart from being totally wrong about everything, Dr. Brown has got quite a cheek saying that Dale Tuggy and other Unitarians believe in two gods. Now that, uh, I have to explain to all of you, is definitely a Britishism, uh, if that's even a term. We don't have that over here in the good old USA. Has got quite a cheek. Uh, so, <laughs> but we, we, get, we catch your drift. We catch your drift. And Shirley Brown, uh, just to push back on you a little bit here, Shirley Brown's not wrong about everything, all right? He does believe in, in scriptural authority and inspiration. He is sincere in his, in his beliefs. So uh, I, I think you, you definitely uh, overstated that a little bit there, 
I don't know if that's intentional or if, or if your words just got away from you there, but uh, let me read it again. Apart from being totally wrong about everything, <laughs> Dr. Brown has got quite a cheek saying that Dale Tuggy and other Unitarians believe in two gods. That really is something. Like the prophets, Messiah, and apostles, we believe in the one singular God of the Bible, whereas he and his fellow Trinitarians are presenting us with a triune God. He's also quite offensive, calling Unitarians a cult. Ah, yes, great point. I thought that was just way below the belt. My goodness. Um, he At one point in the interview last time, he said that, he says, Dale Tuggy's beliefs are a cult. Well, he starts by, by taking a shot at the Jehovah's Witnesses, who I would agree are a cult because of the authoritarian leadership and the total shunning of anyone who is who who leaves the group that they're not allowed to talk to their own kids afterwards, uh, or else they'll get kicked out too. Yeah, that's a cult. That's for me the definition of a cult. This kind of strong authoritarian power. But yeah, calling Dale Tuggy's beliefs a cult, first of all, doesn't even make any sense because beliefs can't be a cult. You need some sort of group to be there in order to be a cult. And second of all, Dale Tuggy's part of the Church of God, which is, first of all, 150 years old. Second of all, the kind of group that does not maintain strong control over its churches. It's very decentralized, very autonomous, and the churches are very independent. So to call that group a cult just because you disagree with it is is no more than an ad hominem attack. It's just it's just it's just name calling. It's like one one kid coming up to another on the playground saying, "Hey, you're an idiot." That's all that's going on here. Seaborn Jones points that out. He goes on by Dr. Brown's view, Jesus and the apostles were cult members, as were the Old Testament prophets. But I'm thankful to Dr. Brown for those insights into Jewish attitudes towards Jesus. That was interesting. All right, well, look, that's just uh, two of the many comments that have come in on that interview. If you haven't listened to it yet, check it out. I do freely admit that it was not a debate. I was not uh, trying to put Brown up on the ropes or anything like that. I was just trying to get his side, his take on how he thought it went. And, and, And what you just heard in this interview was me trying to hear what Tuggy wants to say. Obviously, I am not a neutral observer here. I have a position... And I've stated that position many times in this podcast. I believe that, along with Jesus, that the Father is the only true God, and that eternal life is in believing in the Father, who is only true God, and Jesus Christ, His only Son. So these are, to me, as clear as day, John seventeen three, and I'm hoping to be able to re- refute a number of these other strained readings that uh, Brown and others have for the deity of Christ in our next episode. Well, that's it for today. Tune in next time. Thanks for downloading this. Please share it with others uh, who you think might be interested in it. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.